And if you would, as the offering plate is going around, turn to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Exodus 15, verse 22. Again, Exodus 15, verse 22, if you would, read along with me. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was called Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. They camped there by the water. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we are just in awe of what you are doing, Lord. Not just within our church, Lord, but within people's lives, Lord, as we see so many baptisms this morning, as we see precious babies, Lord, being dedicated and families and parents dedicating to to teach the the good news, Lord, to, to disciple and point their children to you as we Celebrate those that have joined our church as members, Lord. This truly is a celebration Sunday, Lord, and we know that it's all because of you and what you're doing in people's lives, God. We also know, Lord, that there's a lot of sanctification for us, Lord, that have been saved. A lot of growing that needs to be done. A lot of growing to be like your son. God, as we go through these passages in the next few weeks, looking at Israel in the wilderness, Lord, I pray that we are honest with ourselves and we take a just clear look and a reflection of, of where we are, Lord, what, what's truly in our hearts, God. I pray that you expose any bitterness that's in there, Lord, that needs to be healed. That we would turn to you, we would turn away from sin, God, that you would heal us, that we would grow in our sanctification, Lord. Be with us this morning as we go over this important portion of Scripture. In your son's name, amen. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Exodus. In fact, I think it's been since before Christmas that we've been in the book of Exodus. So I wanted to start this morning kind of getting us back into the narrative of where we left off and kind of doing a little review of the book of Exodus. Israel... In the beginning of the book of Exodus has become a large nation, but they are a slave nation. So they cry out to the Lord for salvation. In chapters 2 through 6, God answers that cry by raising up an unlikely deliverer, Moses. Really, in those four chapters, God prepares Moses as unlikely deliverer for his calling. God calls Moses. God starts to reveal his name to Moses and what it means that he is Yahweh. And God, we finally see, is patient with Moses and Israel like a loving father 
is patient with his children. In chapter 7 through 11, we see God's awesome display of power with nine devastating plagues. We also see Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh who is being presented in these chapters as a seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan. One who actually directly challenges Yahweh, challenges his deity, his authority, his sovereignty. In chapters 11 through 13, the the main part of those chapters is the Passover, which is really the defining event of the historical exodus. Israelite families would pick out an unblemished lamb, they would slaughter that lamb, and then they would paint the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. And when God saw the blood, his wrath would pass over the Israelites' house and would enter into the Egyptians' homes. In chapter 12, we see the final plague, the, the firstborn of the Egyptians dying. Yet, the firstborn of the Israelites lived because of the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 14, we get to the Red Sea crossing, and this is where we've been most recently. The Israelites were led by God to the sea, which made absolutely no sense, as we've talked about. They're cornered. Therefore, Egyptians, Egypt, and Pharaoh finds this out, and so they send an army after them. God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross on dry ground. And the Egyptians who follow into the Red Sea, God drowns their whole army with the sea. In chapter 15, we see the song of Moses. The Israelites celebrate their worship God for their salvation. And they're on one side of the shore. The other side of the shore, they're they are freed from Egypt and slavery. And you see them singing to God in worship. It's actually a really beautiful scene. The Israelite women, it seemed, it seemed like the Israelite women were singing to the men. And the men were singing back to the women. All in joyful praise of God. And we get to the end of chapter 15 where we finally see the end. Israel is in paradise. They live happily ever after. Yeah, that's a joke. The story of Israel doesn't end in chapter 15. It doesn't end on the other side of the Red Sea. It doesn't end after salvation from Egypt, salvation from slavery. It doesn't end after redemption. The story of Israel keeps going. In fact, in many ways... The story of Israel is just beginning. You can just think about it this way. We're in chapter 15. There's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. In fact, there's three more books in the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all these books continue the story of Israel after the Red Sea, after salvation, while they're in the wilderness. Philip Ryken writes, What comes next? After the Exodus, after the Red Sea, after God's salvation, what comes next? To put this question in terms of the Christian life, what comes after saving faith? Once a sinner has turned to Christ for salvation, what happens next? Well, the answer is sanctification. The long and hard and difficult process of being conformed to the holiness of God. The Israelites... Uh, made a decisive break with sin when they left Egypt, but a great deal of sanctification still needed to take place. God's people may well have expected to head straight into the promised land, going from grace right into glory. Instead, 
their triumph was followed by tribulation. God's plan did not call for any shortcuts. The promised land can only be reached by the way of the wilderness. They had seen a great salvation, but for them, it would not be happy ever after. They still had a pilgrimage to make, a pilgrimage that was both spiritual and even physical. And this is important. This is important because we can learn so much from the Israelites' pilgrimage from their time in the wilderness. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be back in Exodus, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is talking about the Red Sea crossing. In fact, this whole passage is talking about being on the other side of the Red Sea in the wilderness. Listen to what Paul says. And all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the spiritual food and all drank the, spirit, or the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Right, this passage being talked about here is it, it, Paul is referring back to the wilderness. In fact, when you look at Exodus, what he's talking about in these first four verses is really the next couple chapters we're going to be in in the book of Exodus. Paul is talking about the wilderness, and look what he says, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us. Paul, again, is writing a church, the church at Corinth, and he's saying, hey, all these things that happened in the Old Testament took place as an example to us. The Israelites in the wilderness, that all took place as an example to us. And this is true for us as a church too. Again, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. As an example is an example of what not to do. Again, really verse six is telling us, Paul inspired by God, that what happened in the wilderness is an example for, for you and me as Christians. It's an example for us as the church that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, again, I just want you to think of the parallels of Israel's salvation and our salvation in Christ. Israel was saved from slavery, from the slavery from the Egyptians, just like we were saved from slavery to sin. God's wrath passed over Israel because of the blood of the Passover lamb, just like God's wrath has passed over us because of the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Israel is now a new creation on the other side of the Red Sea, just like we are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in fact, says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, that's what baptism symbolizes. Philip Ryken puts it this way. The exodus from Egypt was a forecast of an even greater exodus. Deliverance from sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Right? There's parallels between the exodus and our salvation, in other words. And Paul makes this clear, according to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, these things took place as an example for us. We can learn a lot from the exodus and our walk with the Lord, especially the time in the wilderness. Now turn back to Exodus 15, verse 22. And as you're turning there, I just want you to think about it. Israel is saved. They're on the other side of the Red Sea, in other words, yet they're not home. They're not in the promised land. Instead, they're in the wilderness. Just like we are saved, we're freed from the slavery of sin, right? We are a new creation adopted in the family of God. In other words, he is our king and we are his people, yet we are not home. I hate to say it, Tehachapi is not home. We're not in the promised land. We're not in eternity. We're not in paradise. The church now lives in a type of wilderness between the first coming of Christ where he saved us and the second coming of Christ where he will take us home. Just like Israel, we are in a type of wilderness facing trials and tribulations where God is slowly sanctifying us, where God is slowly teaching us to trust him. I think we can learn a lot from God's interaction with Israel in these next few chapters. So if you would, look at Exodus 15, verse 22. Again, verse 22 says this, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, I want you to think about this. Within one verse, right, one verse, one verse from the Red Sea crossing, from salvation, one verse from, from the Song of Moses where, where the Israelites are singing back and forth in, in joy of their salvation, worshiping God, fearing God. Within one verse, there's a trial. They're in the wilderness without water. Now, I want you to think about this because I think before I came to this passage, and to be honest, coming to this passage this week, God was really working my heart on a lot of things. But there's one thing that I I just didn't realize until I started to think about it. I always kind of pictured Israel as just whining in the wilderness. But I never put myself in their shoes. Three days without water. You can't live much longer than that. That's a long time. They're not going to survive much longer. And there's well over a million of them in the wilderness without water. It's really becoming a desperate situation. I just want you to think about that before we just get too judgmental of Israel. Verse 23, when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water at Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. That's why it was named Mara. And this implies more than, than it just didn't taste good. This implies it was undrinkable, it was poisonous. So just think about that. So three days without water after, after God has saved you as a, as a nation, three days, a million people, and, and God leads you to water finally. You get there, you're excited, and it's bitter. It's undrinkable. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, 
what shall we drink? And he, that's Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now listen to the warning that God gives. Second half of verse 25, he says this, there, there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and take all of his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And finally, verse 27, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. I don't know if this is a figurative 12 springs and 70 palm trees, or if it's a literal 12 springs for each tribe of Israel. The point is, there is plenty of water in Elam. Now, that's a short story. It's only five verses. But it's a very important story. It's important for one reason, because it introduces the next three chapters of Israel's journey in the wilderness. It's an introduction to the the trials they will be facing. And I want to just give three, really quickly give three common themes that we're going to see in the next three chapters. And these themes really are lessons that we can learn from God's interaction with the Israelites in the wilderness. So let's go through these three things we can learn. The first one is this. God's people should have faith in God that he will provide. Let me say that again. God's people should have faith in God that he will provide. Now, the structure of this passage is extremely important. We miss this a lot in in our Hebrew and English, or our Hebrew and Greek Bibles. We we think differently than, than Hebrews did in getting points across. For us, the point is always at the end. Whenever, whenever you do a, a paper or a sermon, you have a conclusion at the end, and that just summarizes the main point. That, that the point comes at the end. If you watch a story or a movie, usually the climax is at the very end of the story, and that's the main point. That's the conclusion. And so we're always looking for the main point at the end. For Hebrews, often, especially in poetry, but even in story and narrative sometimes, the main point is found right in the center. This is called a chiasm. It gets the name after the Greek letter chi because the Greek letter chi looks like an X. So if you think about an X, what does it point to? The center. So you're going towards the center and then you're coming out from the center. And the main point is the center. In this story, I believe the main point is found right in the middle. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that think that this is a poem. The story is put in poetic writings just to point to the main point, which is right in the middle, verse 25. But I want to show you the chiasm. So look at verse 22. Let me explain what I mean by this. Verse 22, it says this, and this will help you if you're looking in your Bibles. Verse 22 says this, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now that's the beginning of the story. It's meant to be parallel to the very end of the story. Verse 27, which says this, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Do you see the parallel there? In fact, it's a contrast. It's meant to be a contrast. 
Right? These two verses are paralleled and contrasted. Verse 22, there's no water in Shur. You get to verse 27, there's plenty of water in Elam. This keeps going. Look at verse 23 now. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, its name was Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, the people are talking and they say this, what shall we drink? Again, they're grumbling and they talk. And this is meant to be paralleled with the second half of verse 25 and verse 26. Listen, the second half of verse 25 says this. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and he tested them, verse 26, saying, now God's speaking, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and and keep all of his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Again, parallels there's contrast verse 23 we see the people speaking but they're grumbling in verse 26 it's god speaking saying trust him obey his voice again a contrast but parallel contrast this all points to the middle the beginning of verse 25 which is the focal point the main point of this story again verse 25 and he that's moses and he cried to the lord And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. God healed the water. He made it drinkable. The main point here is that God is faithful to provide for his people. He is trustworthy. He will provide, and God will heal. That leads to the second lesson that we can learn from this, this story, a second theme. God, or Yahweh, is a God who heals. He's a God who heals. He healed the water at Merah. And water was bitter. He healed it, and he, he made it sweet. Now, I want you to think about this. Again, we read these stories sometimes, and we just don't ask good questions. But think about this. God could have taken Israel straight to Elam, Right? Moses was leading the Israelites, but God was leading Moses, and God took Moses to shore and took him straight to the water of Merah, the bitter waters of Merah. But he could have taken him straight to Elam, where there's 12 springs and plenty of water. But he didn't. He had him stop in Merah first. Why? Why take them to the bitter waters of Merah first? Listen to, this is what John Calvin says about this, and I think it's insightful. He says this, God might have given the sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make uh, prominent the bitterness which lurks in their hearts. In other words, the bitter water of Merah was a lesson. God was teaching the, the Israelites. He was revealing the bitterness within their hearts and showing them that they, they need healing. Their hearts need healing. Even though Israel was saved at this point from the slavery in Egypt and they were redeemed, they were bought out of that slavery and now God's people in the wilderness, Israel still had a lot of growing to do. A lot of sanctification. Again, look at verse 26. It says this, If you will diligently listen to the voice of your Lord, the Lord your God, 
and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statues, I will um, not put, or I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now, God is reminding the Israelites what they just witnessed. And they just witnessed at the Red Sea. It's only a couple days before this time that they were at Merah. Right, they just witnessed what they, what they just witnessed, not just at the Red Sea, but before the Red Sea with the ten plagues. And God is reminding them what they just witnessed in Egypt and what it means that God is Yahweh. Remember, the whole point of Exodus is God is revealing his name. Right? I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what it means. And he's revealed something to the Israelites already. And if you think about it, what has he revealed? His power. His justice. He's revealed his wrath, that he's a just God and he will not just let sin go, that he will punish evil. If anything, that's what the Israelites know about Yahweh at this point. Ten devastating plagues, they just witnessed it. And wiping out a whole army with the Red Sea. But this passage, and this is important, God is continuously revealing his name to the Israelites from chapter 15 all the way to 40. In this passage, God reveals something else about his name. Again, look at the end of verse 26. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And listen to this. For I am, what's that? Exodus 3. I am. He said, I am about to show you who I am in in Exodus 3. I am Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. So that's God's name. I am Yahweh. And then he tells, reveals something about what it means that he is Yahweh, your healer. We're used to him saying, I am at this point, the Lord, your God. But he adds something different here. I am your healer. Just like the waters at Merah, God is in the business of healing, right? He heals bitter, sin-filled hearts. Yahweh is a God who heals. Verse verse 25, again, the, the focal point, the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the waters became sweet. The bitter water was sweet. God takes bitter hearts. He softens them. He changes them. He was healed. Which leads to a final lesson. And this one's going to hurt. I say that because it's been hurting me all week as I've been studying this passage. God's people shouldn't grumble. God's people shouldn't grumble. Again, look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now the word... Grumble in Hebrew is sometimes translated murmured or murmuring, and maybe some of your translations has that. It's a good translation. It's just a word that we don't use as often as grumble. It just means complaining or whining or even verbally assaulting someone. Jews 12 times in the book of Exodus, and all 12 times are found in chapters 15 through 17. So you're going to see the common theme the next couple weeks here. I would encourage you to keep coming, though. Um, this is a major theme in these next few chapters. Israel's whining and complaining 
And it's portrayed as a major sin. It reveals the bitterness that's within their hearts. It's the bitterness that's within their hearts that produces the whining and complaining and the grumbling. And the need for healing. Once again, if you had turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the next couple weeks, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a lot. Because Paul is referring back to these three chapters. In fact, he's referring back to all the time Israel spent in the wilderness. And so this is kind of a parallel text. And he makes it applicable for us, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 6. It says this in verse 6. Again, now these sayings took place as examples for us. That's That us is us. <laughs> that we might not desire evil as they did. Again, this is talking about Israel and the wilderness. That's the they. Now, listen to the following list. And I, this kind of, as I was studying this again this week, really kind of put in perspective, right, the sin of grumbling. Just listen to the following list. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, let me just say that word play in Greek has this connotation of, of sexual play or, or drunkenness. They, they rose and, and got drunk and had orgies, in other words. We must not, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In other words, grumbling is listed with idolatry, like gross pagan idolatry, sexual immorality, and putting Christ to the test. It's just a major sin. Paul has put these together and grouped them. Now I want you to think about this. Why was Israel grumbling? Well, in this chapter, this portion of scripture that we're in, because they were on the verge of dying from thirst. Three days without water, their bodies were screaming for water. And then verse chapter 15, verse 24 says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Well, just think about that. God saves them from slavery, crosses the Red Sea, does all these crazy miracles, brings them out to the desert. They follow God's leader, Moses, and he takes them after three days of not drinking to bitter waters. And they grumbled. It wasn't that they didn't have a legitimate concern. Remember, they're traveling with families. That means three days without water for their kids. It's just a different perspective being a father. Thinking about that. I I just think as the church, as Christians... We've seen the bitterness in our own hearts. We should be careful before we judge Israel too much. It's not that they didn't sin. It's more that what would we do if we were in their position? It's not that they didn't have a legitimate concern. They did. 
It's that they didn't approach their concern in a godly manner. Instead of praying or approaching Moses, a minister of God, a servant of God, God's designated leader with respect, or just trusting God in this trial, they grumbled, they whined, they talked behind Moses' back, they verbally assaulted Moses to his face. It really just revealed the bitterness in their own hearts. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is telling us that grumbling is a major sin. So let me ask this question. And this is where it gets hard this morning. Can you imagine what God thinks about our grumbling? Now, I'm thankful to be a part of Country Oaks. And I just have to say, you know, I only know Country Oaks. I grew up here. And um, it's not that we're perfect. But I talk to other pastors and other churches, and I'm just thankful for Country Oaks because I just feel like we don't talk behind each other's backs very often. We don't gossip. We don't grumble too much. But you need to examine your own heart on this. Israel grumbled, and think about this, because they're about to die for thirst. We grumble, whine, gossip, verbally assault, talk behind each other's back, even slander each other. Again, when I say we, I'm talking about the American church. Just look out across the horizon. Over the smallest things. We grumble how churches ran. How ministries are being handled. How the worship service is organized. How loud the worship is. How soft the worship is. Too many hymns, not enough hymns. We grumble over things at home. About our family our extended family, our, our, our kids, our, our spouses. We grumble about our jobs. We grumble about our finances. We grumble about the schools our kids are a part of. We grumble about the state and government. We grumble about our circumstances. We grumble about everything. And here's why grumbling is so bad, and we need to think about this when we do it. If God is truly sovereign, which the Bible makes very clear, meaning he's in control of every little thing, every small detail. And if you don't, even, if you don't believe that, you, you believe it in your heart. Trust me. So that's what it means that he's God. If God is truly sovereign, which he is, who are we grumbling against when we grumble? God. I tell you, I was convicted this week going through this. Let me just be clear. Grumbling, whining, gossiping, slandering just reveals the bitterness in our own hearts. We think we can do a better job with the circumstances surrounding our lives than God is doing. So we grumble. We think if we were in control, if we were sovereign, then there'd be nothing to grumble about. Again, I'm not saying that you don't have a legitimate concern. There's many of you that have legitimate concerns about what's going on in your lives. Dying of thirst was a legitimate concern for the Israelites. In fact, Jesus has taught us to pray for, for daily provisions, daily bread. 
It's not that they didn't have a legitimate concern. The sin was grumbling. That's our introduction for the next couple chapters. Again, don't avoid church for the next few weeks. That's just a sign of grumbling. (laughs) We should listen to Paul's warning. Look at verse 10 one more time. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom, or on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We look at the Israelites, that's common. The bitterness in their heart is common to man, and we need to look at it with, with discernment and examine our own hearts. But here's the good news. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, God, I just look at the Israelites in the wilderness and I, I think about church history and and the apostles and the early church and even throughout the years of all the persecution, of all the suffering and struggling of people getting thrown in jail. I think of churches today and the church in in places like China and North Korea where there's heavy persecution, Lord. And here we are in America grumbling. God, I am humbled and convicted. Help us, help me, Lord, as a church. Help help us, Lord. Be a light, Lord. Help us be a place known where there is no back-talking, where there is no gossiping, where there is no slandering, where there is no grumbling about the circumstance we find ourselves in, Lord. That we're honest with you, like the psalmists were honest, that we pray our hearts, and if we have concerns, that we take them to you with passion, emotion but we do that with complete trust that you are sovereign that you are good and that you are way wiser than we are and if we think we could do things better than you Lord I pray we repent and trust in your wisdom that you have put us in these circumstances for your glory and for our good Help us learn as we go through these next few passages. In your son's name, amen.